Let's pray. Father God, it is so exciting um, to get a chance to come together and to open up your word, uh, to open up a book that contains, uh, for a lot of us, more questions than answers, um, and get a chance to maybe figure out some of those, those answers to those questions, um, which gives us a really beautiful chance to know you and your plan a little bit more. So God, help us tonight to have open ears, open hearts, and to love you more by the end of this session. God, thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, uh, we were in Revelation chapter 4, which I divvied up into really two sections, which would be the rapture of the church and the uh, throne room in heaven. And we detailed how the tabernacle um, of Exodus really modeled some of, of what the throne room looks like. And we saw some the glimpses of those Old Testament uh, images in what John was seeing in heaven uh, and explained how the tabernacle is connected as a type of Christ in biblical typology. So it represents Christ and the ultimate fulfillment of the law happened through Jesus, but the tabernacle is a shadow of that in the Old Testament, as well as the tabernacle and its design actually gives us a shadow or a symbol of what the throne room in heaven actually looks like. So there's a couple of things I didn't get to point out last week simply because of time. I was really running short on it. So uh, I want to just kind of tackle those real quick before we move into chapter 5. So one of the things I didn't even, I didn't even go over at all was the altar of incense, um, which is good because we're actually going to run into that in chapter 5 today. So the altar of incense was in the holy place in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And it was made of wood covered in gold. And on top of it, would ha- there was a golden bowl that you would put incense in. And then the incense was lit, and once it was lit, the smoke represented the prayers going up to heaven. And the incense was lit with the coals from the brazen altar. So outside of the holy place and the holy of holies, um, in the tabernacle, so you're looking at this rectangular structure, with it's like a tent structure, uh, with an open courtyard and no roof, and then inside of that there's another rectangular structure that is covered, and that second smaller rectangular structure contains the holy place and the holy of holies. Outside of that, in the courtyard, is the brazen altar, where all of the sacrifices take place. And when the animals are slaughtered and burned, they're burned on the brazen altar, and the blood would drip down to the coals, and the coals from the brazen altar are what they would use to light the incense So the symbolism in the picture there is that the coals with the blood that purified them now lights the prayers of the saints. So the blood purifies the prayers and they're able to go up to heaven. So the picture of that is because we can be cleansed by Jesus, we can have a direct connection with God and our prayers can go directly to him because we're already covered by that same blood that would have been on the coals. So we'll run into that again in chapter 5. Now, the other thing I wanted to expand on a little bit more 
from the tabernacle is the golden lampstand. So you see that in the holy place. If you still have your hand out, um, it looks like a menorah, but has seven lights or seven candlesticks instead of nine like a menorah would have. The golden lampstand stood in the holy place and it always had to be lit. So it was fully made of gold. It was, it, there was no wood. It was completely cast out of gold. And the Old Testament specifically tells us in Exodus that it was, it was beaten and shaped by being hammered. So the picture there of Christ in Isaiah 53 of being beaten and crushed for our iniquity is very much in play. But it was also the only source of light in the tabernacle, and it always had to be kept lit. And Jesus is the light of the world. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the lampstand was lit with oil that was crushed, and specifically olive oil that had to be crushed and beaten and ground um, into its juices. And that's what lit it and kept it lit always. Now, oil, of course, represents the Holy Spirit, but this picture really gets me because the night that Jesus was arrested, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, which happens to be an olive garden where they beat and press the olives to create olive oil and the same olive oil that would have been lighting the lampstand. So this is very much a representation of who Jesus is and what he was going to go through to provide the light of the world. I just wanted to touch on that because I think it's really interesting how the tabernacle points to Christ. But at the same time, in chapter 4, you see a lampstand in heaven as, the, as Jesus is there, John is there, and the 24 elders. Um, and so this is liter- it's also a representation of what is in heaven in the throne room of God. So there is a lampstand that's, that's standing there. Um, and so the design of everything in the tabernacle was ordained by God. I mean, in Exodus 25, Mo- God tells Moses, make the tabernacle exactly the way that I tell you. And it's very specific in its design so that we can understand these things. So with that, let's move into chapter 5. So Revelation chapter 5. I'm reading from the New King James Version, so if it sounds any different, that's why. Um, but it's the same thing. So, and I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? So first, um, there's a very interesting description of the scroll. So normally, in most writings and scrolls that were written at this time, when John is writing this, now a scroll is it's just a book, really, but it's, they don't have pages or binding. It's just one long piece of paper, and it's rolled up from the left and the right. And so it would be connected to something, and as a scribe was writing, they would place a seal and then keep rolling so that everything had to be, and the seals would be on the inside, so that you had to read it in a particular order, and it was just putting down information. But this scroll is different. In this scroll, the seals are on the outside, and it's written on the inside and on the back. So it's written on the outer portion of the scroll, too, which is different. So that wasn't typical. 
the types of scrolls that would have writing on both the inside and the outside, and the seals would have been on the outside, were meant to be secure. It was meant to be known if somebody opened it. So it would have been for a special contract, typically something like a wedding license or a property deed or a rental or lease agreement um, so that you would know if anybody kind of opened it up and got into it. So as a measure of protection. And so what is this scroll? Um, now, most often what we see a picture of, and I let the Bible interpret itself, right? If I have a question about what is the scroll? It, there's not information here, but there's information in the full text of what this could be. And so I let the Bible interpret itself. Most often when you see a picture of something like this, a scroll, it's a title deed to property. So there's a story in Jeremiah 32. Um, in this, I'm just going to sum it up. But in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah is in prison. And he's in prison because he's doing his job. He's preaching God's word. And he's telling the people of Israel and the king the truth, which happens to not be the best news, right? Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he always had bad news and nobody liked him. He's telling the king that destruction and judgment is coming on Israel. And so they lock him up because there's a whole group of other people that are not really communicating with God, but just having sort of a feel-good motivational message. And they're like, well, Jeremiah is lying to us. Let's lock him up and get, get rid of his influence. Well, God speaks to Jeremiah while he's in jail. And Jeremiah knows that Israel is on the verge of being kicked out of their land and God says to him, your cousin's going to come to you in jail, and he's going to offer you a piece of land to buy. Buy it. And Jeremiah buys this piece of land at God's request, and he's told to seal it up in a jar because God knows that while Israel is about to be defeated and held captive and kicked out of their land by the Babylonians, he knows that 70 years later, which is something Jeremiah also prophesies, they will come back. And so Jeremiah will now have, for his descendants, a written record that they actually, the Israelites, have rights to the land legally. And so God does that for him. An even better picture of what I think this looks like is the book of Ruth. It's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, and it's all about this title deed. So in the book of Ruth, just to sum it up quickly, as quickly as I can, Elimelech, breaks God's law. He leaves Israel and he heads to Moab because there's a famine in Israel. While he's in Israel, him and his wife, they have three boys, or sorry, two boys. They have two boys and they both marry Moabite women. And then everybody dies. All the men, they all die. And all that's left are Naomi and her daughters-in-law. And so Naomi has nothing. She's left destitute. So she heads back to Israel and one of the daughters-in-law stays with her. And she tells Naomi, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, and I will just serve you and I'll stay with you, Naomi. And that happens to be Ruth. In this process, they meet a relative named Boaz, and Naomi encourages Ruth to pursue Boaz because Boaz is a relative. And in their traditions, if a woman is made a widow and there is a close relative, he has the opportunity to redeem the woman and the land that they owned in Israel. 
And so she pursues, she tells Ruth how to pursue Boaz. And ultimately, it all works out. In chapter 4, you find out, which is the last chapter of Ruth, you find out there's a closer relative than Boaz who agrees to redeem the land until he finds out that Ruth is involved, a Moabitess. And he says, well, I can't actually, I can't complete this deal. And so, Boaz, it's all yours if you want to do it. So Boaz marries Ruth and purchases the land and redeems the land. This is a picture of something that's called a goel or a kinsman redeemer uh, or a guardian redeemer. Those are all the different terms that were used for what Boaz did. Now, why is this important? Because the other relative that was closer was a fully Jewish man. So he could not marry a Moabitess because that would have broken Jewish law. So he could redeem the land, but not the person. And so since he couldn't marry the person, he couldn't redeem the land. What the law couldn't do, Boaz could. What the law couldn't do for us in repairing our relationship with Christ, Jesus fulfilled the law, and now we have access to God because of that. Now, why can Boaz marry Ruth? Boaz can marry Ruth because Rahab is Boaz's mother, a Gentile, actually a prostitute Gentile. who happened to help the Israelites as they were conquering their land. Um, and she has Boaz, so Boaz is half Jewish. So he's not breaking law by having Gentile, by entering into a Gentile marriage because he's part Gentile already. And the book of Ruth is highlighted because it provides the lineage of David. So Boaz and Ruth happen to be the great-grandparents of David, who the Messianic line goes through. So Jesus is a descendant of Ruth and Rahab and Boaz and David, which means Jesus has not only Jewish blood in his veins, but Gentile blood. So he's able to redeem not just the Jew, but the Gentile. And so this scroll, I believe, is the title deed to the earth, to the whole earth. And we're going to unpack that a little bit as we go through. So verse 3, No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll to loose its seven seals. So first of all, you're getting a very Jewish description of who the Messiah is supposed to be, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's directly from Genesis 49. When Jacob tells Judah that the scepter would not leave his hand or his tribe's hand. So we know that the Messiah will come from a descendant of Judah and ultimately a def- the root of David. Um, and David was a descendant of Judah. So no one in heaven is able to open the scroll until the lion of the tribe of Judah shows up, until Jesus shows up to open the scroll. So I think this takes us to a picture of the grand design of God. The whole story. In Genesis 1, you see the ultimate creation day after day. And on the sixth day, God creates all the animals and all the beasts. And then finally, he creates man. And he takes woman out of man. And he has Adam and Eve. And he tells Adam to subdue the earth and that he has been given dominion over all of the earth. Unfortunately, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve screw that up. They give up their dominion over the earth through their sin and hand it over to the enemy. They hand it over to Lucifer, to Satan, whatever you want to call him. How do we know this? Well, Jesus refers to 
Satan as the ruler of this world in John chapter 14, verse 30. In Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, you might remember this story. Jesus is fasting for 40 days in the desert, and he's, Satan comes to him to tempt him. And he offers him all sorts of different things. And the last thing that he offers Jesus is he takes him up to a high spot, and he says, look at all of this. I, I have the authority to give this to anybody I choose. All you have to do is bow down to me. Satan says that to Jesus. Jesus doesn't refute that point, that Satan has that authority to offer the rule of the earth to whomever he chooses as long as they bow down to him. Why? Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. Paul refers to Satan over and over as the prince of the air or the prince of the power of the air throughout all of his letters. So he has some special authority that he has usurped from man because he caused us to sin and he has taken over that dominion from us. Now, God is still the author. God is still the ultimate owner. The scroll hasn't been opened. He doesn't actually own the earth. He doesn't have the title deed, but he has usurped the dominion from man. So what do we do about it? In 1 Corinthians 15, there's a little picture. It talks about the first Adam and his failure, and then the last Adam and his triumph. The last Adam being Jesus. So there are three things that has to happen when a Goel or a kinsman redeemer is redeeming the property. One, you have to be a relative. Two, you have to be able to fulfill the requirements to buy the property, which was the, the problem with the, the other person that Boaz couldn't do it. Boaz, or the other relative couldn't, but Boaz could. And third, you have to be willing to buy the property. So you have to be a relative. That is why God came in the flesh as a descendant of David, as fully God, but fully human, so that he could be a relative to buy back and redeem the world. And in redeeming the world, he paid the price. He fulfilled the requirements. And lastly, he was willing to do it, to suffer on the cross for us. But just like the story in the book of Ruth, he's not just redeeming the earth and the land, he's redeeming us. He's redeeming the Gentiles. And through the process of the rest of Revelation, he's looking to redeem the Jew as well. So what does the next verse say? So we see, first, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But John looks, and he says, I looked, in verse 6, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. So the lion of the tribe of, the, of Judah grabs the scroll, but the lion is also the lamb who was slain. These are very interesting pictures because it points to everything that was confusing about the Old Testament for the Jewish people. There were several prophecies that led to who the Messiah was ultimately going to be. So much so that even some rabbis wondered if there were two messiahs because some of the prophecies were so stark in their contrast. And they named one of them Mashiach ben Yosef, after Joseph, the suffering servant from Genesis. And they named the other Mashiach ben David because he was the conquering warrior. And you, they couldn't see 
how those two things came together. And what they missed was that it's one person and two advents. The first coming of Christ is the fulfillment of the suffering servant. Why? Because he's paying the price for his bride. And just like Jesus said in John 14, that he goes to prepare a place for us, right? He paid the price for his bride, the church, and the engagement period has begun. The church age. At the end of the church age, or as Paul puts it, the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled, Jesus will return with the shout of a trump or the voice of an archangel. The dead will be caught up, rise, and then the rest of us will be caught up in the air with Jesus. The dead will rise first, and the rest of us will be caught up in the air to meet Jesus. And at that point, the marriage supper of the Lamb begins the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period, and at the end of it, we return with Christ to rule. And because we are the bride of Christ, we are entered into the family of God. We are now sons and daughters of God who have been given the authority to rule with Christ as members of the family. And so that's the, the, pick, the grand scheme, the big picture from Genesis to Revelation, as simply as I can put it. So let's try to get through the rest of this. The seven horns. What are the seven horns? Horns in Scripture always represent power. You see this in the book of Daniel. When they, whenever there's a horn that rises, it means a new world power. It's a power. And the Lamb of God who was slain has seven horns. Why? Because the number, of se- the number seven represents completeness. And so God is completely powerful. He is omnipotent. He has seven eyes. Why? Because the eyes are all-seeing. He is omniscient. He's everywhere. He knows all. He sees all. And he is all-powerful. And the sevenfold spirit of God, meaning the full completeness. He is perfect and whole and complete. So that is the picture we get of God from that verse. And it's all referenced to things like the book of Daniel, where it talks about horns representing world powers. And so God is completely powerful. Isaiah uh, talks about the sevenfold spirit of God. Um, So you're looking at Old Testament pictures that John is describing for us so we can understand who God is, who he's looking at in Christ, the lion and the lamb. He is both. So then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So I mentioned that you were going to see the altar of incense in heaven. There it is, the golden bowls full of, full of incense that represent the prayers of the saints. And there's the 24 elders again, who we talked about last week. The, the 24 elders, just like the description of the church in chapters 2 and 3, they're clothed in white, they're given crowns. There's 24 of them, just like in First Chronicles 23 and 24, there's 24 priests that represent the whole priesthood. There are 24 elders in heaven in the picture that John sees that represent the whole church. So this is the church in heaven. And what do they do when they see this? Now, at first, they're distraught. They're weeping. Now, John 
like cries out in anguish that there's nobody able to open the scroll, that there's nobody worthy of this. And finally, somebody is in the last Adam, in Jesus. He comes, and he's able to open the scroll. And this is the reaction from John and the 24 elders. In verse eight, verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. So this really tells me this is the church. This can't be angels. This can't be something else. This is the church because they say out of that you have redeemed us, right? Out of every tribe and people and nation. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. You have made us kings and priests to our God. So there, this tells me that the heaven, that the church is in heaven before the seals are opened on the scroll. When the first seal is opened, as we'll see in the next chapter, that's the beginning of the tribulation period. That's the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. That's the beginning of the day of the Lord. Whatever you want to call that seven-year period that is the final judgment before Christ's second coming, the church is in heaven before that happens. I know that because there are these people dressed in white, which is the description of the church. They're kings and priests, which is the description of the church in chapter 1 of Revelation. They're wearing crowns, which is the description of the church in chapters 2 and 3. And they have claimed to have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And so there's a very key word, the word us. The proponents typically of the mid-tribulation or post-tribulation rapture or the post-millennial view with no rapture of the church, change the word us to they or them. And the reason they do this, or at least the argument that they give, is that we have 95 copies of the book of Revelation. Only 24 of them use the word us. Now, what they don't tell you is that of the 95 copies we have of the book of Revelation, they're incomplete, right? So we've been able to, like we have chapters 1 through 7 here and chapters 3 through 10 here and chapters 8 through 16 or whatever. We have these different pieces where we've been able to put together the whole thing. Only 25 of those copies of the 95 have chapter 5 in them. And 24 of them use the word that gets translated to us. And the 25th copy uses a word that can be translated to the word us. And so 100% of the copies we have of chapter 5 can or are definitely only able to be translated to the word us in English, which means for sure this is the church. So this is, to me, a very, very strong argument for the rapture taking place before the tribulation period. Now, verse 11. Then I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So pretty much just huge, which mimics what Enoch said in the book of Jude. Enoch's, Jude quotes Enoch uh, in his book and says that he sees the Lord coming with thousands upon thousands of his saints. So Enoch who is a 
character in the Bible from before the flood predicted the second coming of Christ with thousands of, upon thousands of his saints. Jude calls that out in his book, and then John sees the picture of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of saints in heaven. So God's been telling us this for a long time. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is on heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessed and blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever. So the rest of chapter 5 is simply an acknowledgement of how great God is. And he is so great that the angels and the church in heaven, even though they are fully redeemed and have full access to God, as they stand before him and he has the scroll in his hand, Jesus has the scroll, they fall down and on their faces, they bow down and worship him because Jesus is so worthy of our praise. And even in the purity of everybody who's standing there, waiting to find out who's going to open the scroll, why do they fall on their faces and worship Jesus? Because they're standing in the great hall of faith. Abraham's not worthy. David's not worthy. Moses isn't worthy. You and I aren't worthy. Paul isn't worthy. Neither is Peter. Only Jesus. He's the only one who fulfilled the requirements to open the scroll, to live a perfect, sinless life and pay the price so that the title deed can be brought back and bought back by God because God is also a relative because he became a man. And he fulfills the role of the kinsman redeemer and is able to redeem the earth and us through his amazing and awesome power. And the only honest reaction you can have to that is worship. And that's what they do in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are. This picture of who you are is so just amazing. God, we aren't worthy. You tell us in Isaiah that all of our good works brought before you are just filthy rags. The truth is we can't obtain your goodness, your perfection on our own. God, I'm so grateful that you were willing to pay the price and fulfill the requirements to take the scroll and to redeem us as people. God, thank you for your sacrifice and your sinless life and for the preparation you've done to bring us home. God, we love you, and I hope that we can all feel a sense of reverence at the awesomeness of who you are and how clearly you have provided your plan in your scriptures so we can see what you're doing and know how much you love us. In return, help us to love you appropriately with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all of our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.